with you, and joining me as usual is Matthew Lamar. Matthew, how are you doing this evening? I'm I'm back after a one-week hiatus, uh, so I'm doing good. Good. Did you have a chance to celebrate the the Chieftains winning the the, the big game on uh, Monday Night Football? Um, I I was actually uh, at a concert at the Truman, um, and I was there was like a bunch of people all watching their phones. Um, before the show so that was quite fun i didn't see a whole lot but i did see that chris jones holding call which was or not holding uh the roughing the passer which is just just terrible just a terrible call but you know what somebody pointed out on twitter and i think this is the right call which is uh that's what the rule book says the the uh the referee wasn't you know calling it just out of the blue like the rule book says that so you know nfl has some stuff to work out yeah, the back-to-back game or days, I think they had a controversial roughing the passer rule, and you kind of felt like they were kind of trying to make up for that the whole rest of the game. They didn't want that to be kind of what the game hinged on. Uh, even at one point, uh, the, the referee, Carl Sheffers, his voice cracked. I think one time he made an announcement uh, as, as seemingly as he uh, was kind of getting pressured by the, the Chiefs fans there. But, yeah, it's something – I'm all for protecting the quarterback, and and I think they the the rules have good intent. It just seems like they've kind of, you know, gone a little too far, and it's it's really difficult for referees to kind of make that judgment call, you know, bang bang like that. Uh, so I don't know. We'll see if they reform it. But uh, also joining us is Jeremy Greco. Jeremy, I don't know if you have any strong feelings about roughing the passer in the NFL. Uh, I would just like to point out that um, by the rule book, it does seem impossible for the ball carrier to rough the passer. Uh, just that, that seems kind of uh, off off. That doesn't seem like it works to me. Uh, and, and Chris Jones was clearly the ball carrier when his body late body weight didn't even land on, uh, on Derek Carr as he braced himself with his left arm and tried to land on his right shoulder. Uh, so, you know, I, 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 it, I could understand why in the heat of the moment, it might've looked like, uh, he had landed on Derek Carr, um, and obviously this, that's a rule for reason. Um, but at the same time, they did get together and discuss it, and I feel like their eye in the sky should have been like, "Listen, I looked at the replay. He's doing everything physically possible to not land on him. Uh, d- don't don't throw that flag. Like, pick that one up or whatever. You know, just no penalty, guys. Let's just move on." <laughs> yeah, I think yeah, I think that's something they probably have to reform and. Uh... Yeah, we'll see what they end up doing with that because that's pretty high. There's two high, pretty high-profile games. The other one being the Tom Brady game where he was uh, called that he called roughing the passer on him, and when it looked like he actually tried to kick the defender. So I think you, it's you probably need to clean that rule up a little bit. You know, I'm I'm used to Tom Brady getting calls like that, but it's also yeah. starting to feel like the refs have something out for Chris Jones. That's the second penalty he's been called for this year that was kind of game alter game altering drive altering certainly if not game altering uh that was just like i don't think that that penalty works the way that you guys are calling it yeah yeah i, I was wondering that too because he yeah, did have the, the penalty last week as well so maybe maybe he's got a you know he's got a he's a marked man you know the referees are talking about him we'll see well you know we're i guess we're talking about football because the baseball season for at least for the royals is over uh, they finished the year 67-95. Uh, not the season they wanted to have. Certainly a step uh, step back from where, you know, I, where I think I don't think they expected to contend, but I think they expected to make a step forward and make some progress. Uh, but certainly a memorable season for a lot of reasons. 
And I guess I want to ask you guys, what will you remember when you look back on the 2022 season? You know, we look back on, uh, you know, 2012 was kind of like the, 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 the joking slogan that year is our time. Uh, we look back, of course, on the 2014 year for the amazing run, 2015 for the championship. Uh, but when you look back on 2022, I don't know if it'll be a memorable season for you. We'll start with you, Matthew. What do you remember? What do you think you'll remember most about this season? Well, there were a couple of pretty cool uh, things to remember about uh, about players. You know, uh, Bobby Witt's first series was pretty fun where, you know, he had that game winning hit and opening day. And then he had that crazy, um, you know, play at third base um, to save a, a run at home. You know, that that was a good opening series. Um, I'll remember you know, the debuts of a number of their players. That was fun. Uh, Brady Singer was fun. Um, but I think independent of like on the field, I think what was different about this year um, was basically the fan reactions to the Royals uh, quality of play, um, you know, over the, you know, since 2016, 2017, you know, the, there was a minority of Royals fans who were un, unhappy with how the team was performing, even in 16 and 17, but most people weren't unhappy. And that was even true in 2018 and 2019, you know, when the Royals were losing hundred games a year, it was just like, okay, this is just the price you have to pay. They're rebuilding, you know, and um, this year, the sentiment completely changed. And I, that's what I will remember the most, I think, which is just watching um, you, you know, the social media reaction to all of the Royals just losing and, and uh, watching that shift from the beginning of the season to be like, yeah, OK, maybe we can compete to like two months in being like everyone should everyone should go or just like fire everyone. <laughs> you know, like that was a huge, huge shift. And it happened in like two months, like by the end of May and certainly in June, you know, the fan sentiment had was somewhere where I had not seen it since you could argue, I don't know, 2005 or 2006, you know, when Dayton Moore originally got hired, potentially in like 2012 or 2013, maybe mid-2013, I think, when um, the Royals were like not very good, even though they went out and they got James Shields. Uh, but they turned it around at, the, at that year. Uh, they didn't this year, obviously. I think that's the most memorable thing to me. And I know that's not like an on-play or on-the-field thing, but it was really fascinating to watch um, as someone, you know, who, who has written a lot about the Royals and people ask me what I think about the Royals, you know, uh, who know that I write for Royals Review and everything. So that was the thing that stuck out to me. And it was just is I wouldn't have predicted it. And there is no guarantee that it would have happened. You know, in an alternate universe, there are enough Royals fans who are just like, yeah, let's see it through. But it just the switch completely flipped. And I'll remember that for a long time. Yeah, I think we were all ready for some rough years when we saw Hosmer and Moustakis and Alcides Escobar and Lorenzo Cain all ride off into the sunset. And, and we knew that there, there was going to be some time, you know, I think I bought some date more, some time and we'd see that through. And, and yeah, that time definitely expired like by May you know, when they got off to a, a dreadful start. Uh, and, and I think I think that's a, that's probably a good way of putting it. Like it, it was kind of the fan base really turned on the team and, and really John Sherman, I mean, you know, I think he made a bold choice, but in a lot of ways, it's kind of the choice he had to make, you know, based on what the fan base was, was saying at that time. So, Jeremy, what do you when you look back on the 2022 season, what, what, what do you think you'll remember about it? Uh, the most memorable thing about this season to me uh, is probably that Toronto series uh, ending the first half headed into the All-Star break when 
uh, almost half the team had to stay behind uh, because they weren't vaccinated. And we suddenly got the influx of all the youngsters. We got so many rookie. It was it was a negative experience. I remember being very angry and, and, and frustrated with the team. And it was a very negative experience to not have those guys be able to play in that series. But it was also a very positive experience because we got to see the what what would come in a few weeks, uh, maybe a month later, uh, with the rest, with, with all those rookie debuts, Michael Massey, Nate Eaton, uh, Vinny Pasquatino was already up, Nick Prado, uh, Sebastian Rivero, um, you know, just, just a whole bunch of young guys who had some real major league talent and, and can, can inspire hope for a brighter future in Kansas city. So it was, it was a big negative moment, but it was also a big positive moment and, and happening right before the all-star break, I think really kind of cemented it in the brain, at least for me, because, you know, then after that, there was a week of nothing happening uh, except for, you know, the all-star game, which uh, we had uh, who who made the all-star game for the Royals this year, Andrew Benintendi, (laughs) who's not even on the roster anymore. Wasn't on the roster three weeks later. So, um, but yeah, so that, that's the moment that sticks out for me. Yeah. In terms of like the story that made the most national headlines, like, you know, the top three stories on ESPN, like that's probably the Royal story that the only Royal story that made it this year. I mean, maybe the firing of eight more, uh, which that would be my, I think, most memorable moment, I think just, and I think, I think your, yours, the, the Toronto series, that was probably the beginning of the end. I think, I think that uh, was some pretty bad publicity. I don't think, um, it looked good about the, you know, how the organization was being run. Like, remember Dave Moore was a club president this year. He, you know, his, he was supposed to kind of take a step back on baseball operations and maybe kind of be a big picture guy. Well, that was a pretty big picture thing that didn't seem like it was, you know, handled well at all. And, uh, you know, I think that maybe started raising some questions about whether or not this would really work with Dayton Moore as club president, kind of overseeing what J.J. Piccolo was doing. Um, so I think, you know, that was the beginning of the end. And Dayton Moore getting fired, I think, was ultimately what I'll remember, kind of turning the page. And this really begins a new chapter for Royals history uh, with J.J. Piccolo in charge, but also with the players, like you mentioned, that got to debut or at least come up sometime during the summer. Um, and, and we can, we can kind of see that what the next Royals team is going to look like. And so we don't know what, what the future will bring. Um, maybe they'll be good. Maybe they'll be, uh, kind of floundering for another couple of years, but, um, it's definitely a new chapter, which I think gives fans some hope. Uh, let's talk about the team MVP. Um, Matthew, who, who's your most valuable Royal this year? No one, <laughs> no one, no one critical um, spirit. So uh, Brady Singh was obviously the, the best, <laughs> the best, right? Um, but the reason why I say no one is like, uh, Brady Singer wasn't even like, he didn't really like gain his stride until like June. So like the first two plus months of the year, he wasn't on the team. Right. And through no fault of his own, really, he should have been on the team. Um, one reason among many why, uh, the Royals, uh, made the right change there. But like, if you look at, uh, fan graphs, um, and I know wins above replacement isn't everything, but I think it's it's it shows some something about this team. Uh, they had one player, precisely one player, and that was Brady Singer, get more than two and a half wins above replacement. They just had a lot of like ultimately, you know, mediocre production, which when you grade on the curve that those guys who are producing kind of mediocre production, um, are rookies, you know, it's not bad, but like, man, that I, 
I, I just struggle. Like Brady Singer was good. Scott Barlow was good. You could make a case for both of them. And, and I, 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 I probably, if I were a little less, less grumpy, I would say Brady Singer clearly. <laughs> um, but it was, it was kind of an interesting, interesting year. And in there, there wasn't really a lot of players uh, who really stepped up. Now, Vinny Pasquantino was very good. Uh, he hit 37% above league average, which was awesome, but he did it in only 72 games, you know, so like that was part of the Royals problem is that they, they didn't really have a guy step up and become the guy, um, at least on the position player side, you know, wit was that for a couple weeks at a time here and there, but you know, they didn't have long enough, uh, you know, players on the team for long enough or who were good enough um, to really like come out and grab the MVP, uh, the team MVP, but someone has to win it. So Brady Singer gets it sort of by default, although it is interesting to note um, that, you know, wins and losses obviously don't mean a whole lot, but the Royals uh, only won 67 games and Brady Singer's win loss record was 10 wins and five losses. Um, And it was quite impressive to see, you know, him, you know, take on the, the role of that like stopper, uh, you know, starter who could just stop a losing streak. Um, and you know, they had a good chance of winning when he was on the mound and they, and they won a lot of games when he was on the mound. So that, that was very interesting to see. Um, and, and pretty fun to see, you know, uh, obviously if you saw him pitch anytime from, you know, mid June on, it was, it was a delight, but, um, yeah, singer in my mind gets dinged a little bit because he only started 24 games. Jeremy, did the Royals have an MVP this year, or do you think the MV, the real MVP was us, the fans? Uh, it was clearly Hunter Dozier, right? <laughs> the real uh, MVP was the the friends you made along the way. Was it, it, maybe it was Ryan O'Hearn? No, I mean, okay. Stop uh, this. <laughs> my, uh, my, uh, my vote for MVP goes to uh, another guy uh, that did not – uh, start the year with the Royals and kind of took a while to get promoted, get started, uh, kind of, again, through no fault of his own, already mentioned by Matthew, uh, Vinny Pasquantino, uh, who accrued, according to fan graphs, uh, 1.5 FWAR in 72 games. Uh, so if you just double that up to 144, which is, you know, still not a full season, uh, but a pretty good, a pretty good number of games to start. If you were talking about a full season, that's three war. Um, that's respectable. Uh, especially for a rookie first baseman, just getting his start a rookie DH, just getting his start uh, in the big leagues. Uh, so that that's my guy. He, he did nothing but hit the cover off the ball in Omaha. And then he, he came up and it took him a few weeks, but he, he really got his feet under him and, and looked like a major league hitter uh, for the rest of the year for Kansas city. And I'm excited to see where he goes next. Yeah, I think Brady Singer. I think he's he's the guy that felt you felt like he had, you had the best chance to win when he was on the mound. And as far as guys taking a step forward, I think he's he's the one that clearly took a step forward. I think you gotta say he's the MVP for this team. Uh, certainly some good things I think we saw from Bobby Wood Jr., Vinny Pascantino, um, Scott Barlow as well. Dylan Coleman kind of surprisingly good out of the bullpen, but but Brady Singer I think is your Royals 2022 MVP. What about the uh, most pleasant surprise, either a player or something that happened, something that pleasantly surprised you? In the 2022 season, uh, Matthew, we'll start with you. Um, I think you would have to say, well, I, I sort of have to say Nate Eaton um, is the guy 
um, the pleasant surprise. You know, when you think about good teams, what do good teams do? Yeah, they produce, um, you know, stars, right? Uh, they produce, you know, a Jose Ramirez, you know, like with the Guardians or you know, the Altuve or Aaron Judge or, you know, these these guys who are, you know, superstars or stars who can carry a team who when they come up in the playoffs, uh, you know, these guys are the guys who uh, you can rely on and be like, OK, this guy's coming up. I, I feel good about this. So teams need to make those uh, create, you know, those those players out of out of their draft picks. But also an underrated part of a team getting long-term success, like in the style of the Rays and the Guardians and the Brewers, is just being able to internally produce role-playing guys. Um, and I don't mean Dungeons and Dragons variety, just, you know, the, the, the fourth outfielders who are on cheap contracts, who can, you know, who can run, who can, uh, you know, play all over the place, who can be good defensive replacements and who can be a decent offensive you know, hitter, those guys on the free agent market can cost millions of dollars. But if you produce them yourselves, um, you can save a lot of money and also have a lot of flexibility in your roster. Um, and I think that Nate Eaton is exactly the type of player that the Royals haven't really been able to produce consistently, um, which is one of the reasons why they have been sort of in this sort of rut for the, for the last while, as you think even if they had a guy like Nate Eaton, like in 2016, 2017, well, that was more than they had produced, you know, internally at that point. So, you know, there's no guarantee. I, I don't know if he's going to be a league average hitter, which is what he was in 122 plate appearances this year, but he was defensively very good. He was good in the outfield. He was, uh, he had some moments at third base, both good and bad, but like, uh, you know, cannon of an arm, strong base runner, um, you know, he stole 11 bases in 44 games. Like that's, that, that's, that's pretty good. Um, so Nate Eaton is the guy who, who surprised me the most and in a good way. And uh, I'm really, he's, he's just a fun player to watch. Jeremy, who was your big surprise this year for the Royals in 2022? Uh, Nate Eaton is certainly up there. Um, but my big surprise is not just a player, not just a moment, but a moment and a player uh, in the form of Drew Waters. Um, the trade for him, trading that uh, uh, that that draft pick to the Braves to Atlanta for uh, Drew Waters and a couple couple other guys, right? Uh, that we may or may never hear from again. Um, and then him turning out at least, you know, in a September debut to look like an above average hitter uh, who can feel decently and run a little bit. Um, and that, uh, the Royals have made these trades before where they go out there and they get these guys who, uh, you know, uh, the Mike Moustakis trade comes to mind where they went out and got Brett Phillips and Jorge Lopez, who were both, uh, you know, they they had looked really good at one point in the prospect uh, realm been top 100 guys and kind of fallen off and they said you know maybe we can figure out what's wrong with them and help them turn it around um obviously that didn't happen uh and and drew waters was kind of a similar thing uh where they said you know he the shine had kind of come off him a little bit and the royals said let's get him and see if a change of scenery can fix things and and it you know early returns say they have 
Uh, so everything about that situation, it was, I think, a smart trade. I liked the trade from the beginning because I think when you're when you're dealing with uh, a pick in between the first and second rounds, I think the most you can hope for is a guy who turns into a top 100 prospect. Um, and and top 100 prospects don't always stay there. So the fact that he ever made it there, I think, is is you know that's what you're hoping to get, right? And then to to have him so to make that trade, get something that makes sense for that pick, and then also have it work out uh, at least so far, I, I think was really surprising and, and really exciting for the future of this team. That probably was a big reason why they went with JJ Piccolo as Jen as kind of like the man in charge. Cause it sounds like the trade kind of his idea a little creative than the world, the Royals have done in the past. And then to have the hitting development uh, kind of help work with him to get him to be a better prospect than he was with the Braves. Um, again, another feather, I think, in J.J. Piccolo's cap is someone, I think, that had been pushing for a revamping of that hitting development process. So, yeah, yeah I agree. That was a big surprise as well. I'll go with Brady Singer just because I think I was kind of down on him going into this year. I'll bet that. Um, I don't. I, I thought maybe he was a solid pitcher, but not a guy that could take it to the next level. And I think with his performance this year, um, I think he took it to that next level. And, and looks, it looks like he can at least be like a really solid number two. And, and I think there's potential now that he could be like an ace if you wanted to find it. Uh, you know, an ace, however you want to find an ace. Uh, so I think he's, he's really taken a, a step up and turned that proverbial corner. And, and that's pretty, uh, I think, pretty exciting uh, development because we've been talking so long about how the Royals have not developed the starting pitching prospect. And look, they still have a long way to go, but to at least get one guy who, frankly, already looks like he might be better than Danny Duffy or maybe Jordan Aventura, um, the other two starting pitchers they developed in, what, 15 years. Um, I, I like his potential to kind of surpass those guys. So that, that would be, I think, a good, a really good development for this franchise going forward. Uh, well, I, I kind of wanted to put a, a bow on the season a little bit. I, you know, I don't think we need to spend too much time remembering a 95 lo- lost season. Uh, but uh, I did want to give some kudos to some of the good things we saw from the Royals this year. But, uh, you know, I do want to turn to the future. And, and of course, the, the immediate future right now uh, kind of hinges on the managerial search. And um, the Royals are still kind of early in that process. Uh, haven't interviewed anyone. Uh, JJ Piccolo was on 610 today. Talked a little bit about how they're kind of still trying to n- narrow, winnow their can- number of candidates down. They don't want to interview like 25 guys, he said, but they want to get it down to a reasonable number. And there are player, you know, there are candidates out there interviewing right now. Pedro Grafal, who's a Royals bench coach. He's already begun interviews with the White Sox and the Marlins. Uh, I know Astros bench coach Joe Espada, who's going to be a very popular uh, candidate. He's already interviewed uh, with the Marlins as well. Piccolo was uh, quick to say that you know they are they have reached out to people they're interested in to let them know they're interested, but not not quite ready to start doing interviews yet. Um, but uh, Matthew, I guess we'll start with you. I guess, how do you feel about how they're going about the process? Uh, and then do you feel like they're going to go with an external internal candidate, an external candidate? Do you have any names in mind or what you're looking for with the next Royals manager? Uh, yeah, I'm not too worried about the process, um, really. I think that the Royals can do um, a number of, of – there, there are a number of good hires out there for the Royals. And I think the biggest thing that the Royals can do for themselves here is to hire a manager who fits in with – what they're trying to do. And I think there are multiple people who can do that. Um, when you think about what the Royals need in a manager, right? They need someone who can interface with players who can work well with young players 
who can help uh, bring in veterans to the team into that clubhouse and also to communicate with the front office and the rest of the coaching staff um, in terms of keeping a cohesive you know, line of communication from top all the way to, to bottom. I think that's the most important things that um, those are the most important things that a manager does nowadays. And there are probably multiple people who can do that. Um, I don't really have any specific names that I like super, super love. Um, the one thing that I would really like to have is for the manager to be bilingual. I think this is just kind of an underrated thing, right? Uh, there are a lot of uh, Latino players in baseball, like a, a disproportionately high number of Latino players compared to lots of other places. I mean, I think to have the like guy who's the captain of your team be able to speak in native language, you know, to those Latino players, I think is a bigger deal than most people realize. So that's something that I would like, but you know, there are again a lot of people who are bilingual on baseball, and I'm, you know, I'm sure the Royals can find someone who can fit all those requirements. Again, it comes down to who's the best fit, not necessarily who is the smartest guy or who is the hottest choice, because there are, you know, the Royals probably aren't the most attractive managerial job on the market. Um, so, you know, I don't think it's a bad job. Certainly there's only 30 of them, but, you know, the, they don't need the hottest guy on the market. They don't need to go out and get Joe Madden or something. You know, they, they can find someone to interface with their clubhouse and with the front office. Um, and I'm just interested to see who they'll they'll pick and what the clubhouse looks like next year. Yeah, I don't. I don't see them bringing bringing in a big name like Joe Madden or Ron. Ron Washington's another name I've heard some fans call for. Uh, Bruce Bochy. I don't think he's going to come out of retirement to come manage the Royals. I mean, number one, I don't think it's going to be a very attractive spot for a, a manager who's maybe looking for a ring at the end of his career. But you know, also I think the Royals are looking for the next up and coming manager. They don't want someone that's going to manage this team for three years and then step away. They want someone who could potentially be here for ten years, you know, and win a couple of division titles and maybe a championship. So that's probably someone that's younger, someone that's probably um, well-versed in analytics. I think bilingualism is going to be a plus. I mean, I think there are a lot of good candidates out there who are of, of Latino descent or are bilingual. Um, so I don't think there's any shortage of candidates out there. Um, Jeremy, what do you kind of think about where the Royals are with their managerial search? Do you think Pedro Grafal will be a favorite or do you think they're going to go outside the organization? Uh, I, I tend to agree with Matthew that if Pedro Grafal was a favorite, uh, I think we would have heard more about that or he would already be the guy. Um, it, it does kind of seem like he's probably going to move on. Um, and, and as far as who they, who, you know, they, they might ultimately get, um, the biggest thing is, uh, is, you know, a manager, the, the data, the decisions about who comes in from the bullpen or window bunt or whatever. It's all kind of window dressing. Uh, you know, pretty much everybody, anybody who knows anything about baseball can make a competent decision uh, in those, in those cir circumstances. Um, but where a baseball manager, the really important thing they do is, is keep everybody headed in the same direction. Cause you've got 26 players and I don't even know how many coaches um, that all have their own, uh, goals and desires and and you know the part of what they all want is to win but um you know some of them may want may have that higher in their list than others um and you know it's it's important to just meet players and and coaches i think where they're at and and make sure that um you 
did, that everybody is ultimately headed in the same direction. Everybody's working towards the same goals. Everybody's working together. Keep things just keep the communication open uh, and make sure that uh, you, you keep things like clubhouse tension uh, to a minimum. Yeah, and that's I think JJ Piccolo in his comments today on Six Ten Sports talked about communication being the most important thing he's looking for in a manager, and he kind of talked about what we talked about like you know you can have good data, good strategy, but if you're not communicating it well, it's not going to work. So I think that that does seem like something he's really emphasizing, and and I think again that plays into maybe wanting a younger manager who's maybe not that far removed from the from his playing days, so he can relate to some of these players uh, that that are probably close to the same age. So. Uh, it'll be interesting to see how that process plays out. We haven't heard really any other than uh, there's a, there was one report of Clayton McCullough, first base coach of the Dodgers. John Morosi reported he's a candidate. Uh, that's not been really confirmed by anyone else, but um, I'm sure over the next week or so, we'll start hearing about more names popping up as uh, as candidates to get interviews. Uh, I mentioned that interview that JJ McCullough had on 610. Uh, he had some other, other interesting comments about what the Royals plan to do this offseason. And it doesn't sound like the Royals are going to be spending a lot of money on free agents, uh, even though that they don't have a lot of contractual obligations next year, $32 million in contracts tied up in Salvador Perez, Hunter Dozier, and Michael A. Taylor, plus about another $30 million in our eligible players. Some of those players will get cut. Um, and then another $9 million in, 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 the, in rounding out the roster. So really $73 million payroll right now as is. So you think there might be some some money to play with if they wanted to go out in free agency. But he kind of dismissed that a little bit in some comments today on Cody and Gold on 610 Sports, saying, quote, we're young. We're coming off a tough season. It might not be the right time to invest heavily in this team. Now, I did say that once they got to a point where they felt like they had a competitive team, they would uh, likely invest in the free agent market. And he didn't dismiss the idea totally of. You know, signing a free agent, saying if there's someone out there that fits their range, then they go out and try to sign this play, that player. But uh, Matthew, I, it didn't really surprise me to see him say that. I think it kind of echoes what owner John Sherman said a couple weeks ago when he was talking about how teams are built and they are not, you know, small market teams are not built through a free agency. You don't take a bad free, a bad small market team and make them good. You don't really take any bad team and make them good simply by adding a couple mid-tier free agents. Now, maybe if you add an all-star team, you know, perhaps, but the Royals certainly aren't going to do that. Um, what did you make of J.J. Piccolo's comments on, on not maybe being that active in free agency this winter? Well, uh, first of all, it's refreshing to see Piccolo um, speak more candidly about things. Um, one of one of the frustrating things about Moore was that, um, you know, he, he, he wouldn't always – say really what he meant and to a degree every general manager has some you know they don't show all of their cards but you can be honest and say hey look we're coming off a hard year we don't think you know we've got a ways to go uh this isn't the time you know what more probably would have said was you know hey we're we're excited we're we we're ready to win we we think we can win which is clearly not the case right they just they just won stick deep five games or 67 games. What was it? Six. I don't even 67 wins. 67. Yeah. 67 wins. Yeah. That's, that's not a lot. Um, and so there are two things here. First of all, um, if the Royals, um, let's, so the Royals won 67 games. Uh, let's say that with the same exact roster, they get 10 games. So they, they're 10 games better across, you know, Bob Witt takes a step forward. Other pitchers take a step forward. Like they get 10 games out of, you know, just internally from internal, you know, 
improvements. Okay, great. They're at 77 wins. All right, let's say you go out and you sign a big-name free agent, a couple big-name free agents, and they get you another five wins. Where are you? You're at 82 wins. You're not – you haven't really done anything. Like, congratulations, you got to 500, and you spent $100 million on extra free agents, you know, doing so. So I, the Royals clearly aren't in a spot where free agency is going to help them move meaningfully from one strata of performance to another. And the other thing that I that I keep thinking when I see people unhappy about the Royals, you know, not spending money or going on spending money, is I, is like w- w- people are free to and and do criticize teams for spending money uh, on inefficient free agents, and most free agents are inefficient. So they're in a damned if they do, damned if they don't situation where if they do, let's say they go out and spend eighty million dollars on somebody and he's bad because that's entirely possible. Well, oh, they shouldn't have gone out and spent $80 million on this guy. Um, and they're getting dinged for by, by some people for not going out, you know, and saying, hey, we're ready to compete with free agency, you know? So it's kind of like the Royals are, are in a position where nothing they would do, they could do here would make people happy. Um, the, the So I think the Royals are, are doing the right thing, which is they're sitting back and they're waiting to see what they have. And then... You know, Piccolo said something to the effect of, like you said, when when we're ready, then we'll sort of take a step forward. There is a time to go out and spend a lot of money on free agents, and it's not the year after he wins 67 games. Yeah, I mean, I think like, what do you want them to have another Michael A. Taylor and Carlos Santana blocking, you know, younger players? You know, and I know, okay, well, just go out and sign good players. Well, Michael A. Taylor actually has been a pretty good player, but uh, you know, what's the point if you bring in some good pitcher? Um, that's not moving the needle much. What's going to move the needle, like you said, is, is all those young players taking a step forward. And then at that point, once they've showed um, some some progress, then yeah, you, you you add a player or two to put you over the edge and get you into contention. And Piccolo did say something about like he they wanted they needed to clear some barriers to get to the point where they should invest in the team, and they haven't cleared those. They thought they would clear those barriers this year, and they didn't. Uh, so uh, you know things kind of took a step backwards this year, and I think that's why. Uh, they're probably not going to invest in free agency, but I don't know. Jeremy, I, I, a lot of fans when I when I posted those comments were really upset uh, with the Royals and said, "Hey, same old Royals being cheap. Uh, maybe we shouldn't invest in this team then, or maybe we as fans shouldn't invest in this team. Maybe we as taxpayers should invest in this team when it comes to a downtown stadium." Uh, was that your response, or were you kind of you know that hey, it's fine if they don't want to spend some money? I I'm torn. Um, first, I do want to echo what Matthew said and and say I appreciate not being treated like I'm an idiot. Uh, I appreciate that Piccolo was a little bit more honest about why they're not going to spend money um, and the fact that they aren't going to spend money. Um, but I'm also torn because I, I absolutely see the point that, that you all are making about how, you know, signing a couple guys isn't going to make a big difference. But at the same time if they don't spend the money now, it's not like 10 million saved now gets spent later. Uh, you know, they'll, they'll still talk about how the team is, they don't want to lose money. Uh, if, if the team is bad for five years and they don't spend any extra money for five years, it's not like they've saved up. They keep all that money and they, they add it to their budget and say, now we could spend this to go to the, to the world series. It's just not how it works. Um, so I kind of would just like to see them go ahead and spend the money uh, rather than just put it in, in, you know, John Sherman's pocket. 
But uh, like you said, it, it almost doesn't matter. The team's still not going to probably be any good anyway. Um, and and you risk blocking some of these young players uh, by making a free agent signing that doesn't pan out. And then you're not letting, you know, I wouldn't probably go get position players at this point, uh, except for maybe an outfielder. But uh, starting pitchers make a lot of sense to me. But then that's fewer innings that the starting pitchers they have can pitch and and. Chris Bubich and Daniel Lynch aren't going to get any better if they're not pitching. Uh, and maybe they don't get any better anyway, but they definitely don't get any better if they're, they're not pitching. So uh, it's frustrating. It's a frustrating time to be a Royals fan. And, and I think I'll leave it at that. Yeah, I'll push back a little bit too. I, I, and I could be wrong on this, but I thought I had heard once that, they the Royals do kind of operate on a five year budget plan where like if they spend a little more one year they can spend or if they spend a little less on one year they can spend a little bit more in another year like cause I think that when they said they signed Jason Hamill they that they're like well we can't really afford it but we're gonna you know we're not we're gonna have to take it out of next year's budget or something like that so I, I and I don't know I could be wrong maybe it doesn't actually work like that but um you know I think there is a possibility that they do spend more money down the stretch. But I guess to be – I'm of two minds on this. Like, do, do I think owners should share more with players and spend it on players? Yes. But I think there should be incentives to do so. And right now, the way the system is set up, there's not an incentive for small market teams to spend money on free agents. Uh, Absolutely. It's, it's, it's not a smart thing to do, uh, especially, you know, especially long-term deals. Maybe a one-year deal. There's nothing wrong with a one-year deal. And I, and I think more small market teams probably should do more one-year deals with, when, with free agents that are out there. But they're, you know, you're, you're, more often than not, you're stuck in a deal like the Ian Kennedy deal or, you know, you know, or the Omar Infante deal where you've got a year or two where you're just like, man, I wish we hadn't signed that guy. Because you're signing players on the de- decline of their career who you're paying for past performance um, and, and you feel like you have to play them even if, when they're playing badly. And so – you know, when I hear John Sherman talking about the, the franchises he wants to emulate, Cleveland and Tampa Bay and Oakland, um, they're not the teams that would sign free agents to a 67-win team. Now, those teams, I think, are also extraordinarily cheap and, and probably should. I mean, and we'll talk about the playoffs here in a minute, but think about how good Cleveland would be if they had spent the money on a good hitter. <laughs> like That lineup could use a really good slugger right now to go with Jose Ramirez. And that may be why they don't advance in the playoffs. But they're in a position where the edges matter, right? They could use another player. They could use another two, you know, reliever. They could use another, uh, you know, hitter in that lineup. The Royals aren't in that position. They need a lot of help, and they need um, more good young players. Gonna, because it's going to take a while, and by the time they're good again, a free agent may be gone. So I don't see the point really in signing a free agent. Uh, I understand Alex Duvall and I were kind of going back and forth on Twitter. I understand the point of like. Yeah, it's not it's it's it's, you know, owners should spend money and like it won't make you worse to spend money on a free agent necessarily as long as it's a short term deal. But I just I just don't see the point. I'd rather see them um, go after cheap players that are available and turn them into good players like like the Rays do all the time. They pick up guys off the waiver wire and suddenly the guy's an all star. Um, and I'd like to see the Royals get to that, get to that point. And, and it all starts with development and maybe. Uh, maybe that's maybe people don't trust the Royals development. I can't understand why, but uh, I like to think they're on the right track here. At least they're getting there. So let's see. Uh, let's see how they do with that. Well, let's take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to talk a little playoffs and wrap things up with our Royals review reviews. 
And we're back. And uh, I just don't want to, you know, the playoffs are underway. I miss, I miss the Royals being in the playoffs, but it's, it has been fun seeing some other teams. I wanted to ask you guys, who are you rooting for and who do you think will take it at this point? I know we made some predictions before the playoffs. My prediction of Mets Guardians already up in smoke with the Mets bouncing out. I guess that we're calling it the wild card round, even though there's not all wild card teams are in the round. Uh, but the Mets uh, won 101 games and are <laughs> because they lost uh, two out of three uh, to the Padres. They are done for the year. Uh, Matthew, we'll start with you. Who are you cheering for, and who do you think is going to take it all at this point? Uh, I am delighted in the Mariners' 2014 Royals energy. It's it's absolutely wonderful. I'm so glad that they, they advance at least past the divisional series. And then I hope that if nothing else, they win a game or two at home, because um, that would be just so much fun for for Mariners fans. So I'm rooting for the Mariners. Uh, I'm rooting for the Guardians um, as well because. Um, the, the alternatives are the Yankees and the Astros. I would rather see the Yankees win. I'm tired of seeing the Astros. Um, the Yankees at least haven't been to a World Series since 2009, which in Yankee terms is like forever. The Astros have been to multiple World Series recently. That's that's no fun. Um, I think in the National League, I'm, I'm rooting for the Padres, but um, you know, I, I, I have a feeling the Dodgers are, are probably going to you know, go really far. The Dodgers are scary good because they're like, what if we're as smart as the race, but have more money than anyone also. Um, so they are just crazy good. Um, so yeah, rooting for the Mariners. I think probably the Yankees are going to end up in the, in the world series. I think, I think I had a Yankees, uh, maybe Yankees Dodgers. I think I, think I had, yeah, to, say, I think you may have picked that before the year too. Did you? Yeah, yeah, I think I picked Yankees Dodgers if I remember correctly at the beginning of the year. So I mean that's that's going pretty well. Both of them are in the division series and have a, a win already uh, over their opponents. So that that was my prediction at the beginning of the series. It's or at the beginning of the year. It's still my prediction. Um, it would be interesting to see like the two big name teams. Um, you know, if we can't get two tiny small markets. Give us the biggest markets possible and see <laughs> see what happens. Like, eh, eh, oh well. Jeremy, who are you pulling for this uh, postseason, and who do you have uh, winning it all? I, I probably I think it was sometime last year watched a video series uh, that I think it was John Boy's of SB Nation mm-hmm. <laughs> put out about the Mariners. Yes, it's uh, the, their entire franchise history. And ever since watching that video series, I just have this strong affection for them. Just like, man, they've been through a lot. And uh, so I'm I'm definitely rooting for the Mariners uh, to the point that I'm I'm not I'm not really usually I'll root for at least one AL team and one NL team and I'm not really pulling for any NL team in particular uh I'll you know Phillies Padres just you know keep it away from the the guys who've been there recently uh and, and nobody else in the AL just go away just give me Mariners all day every day uh Cal Raleigh Raleigh however you say his last name I love it I love like he hit that game winning home run against the Royals, which was hugely frustrating at the time. But I just love the name that his name is Rally and and he keeps hitting game winning hits. And and I want to see I want to see him. I, I think I predicted in our end of the year wrap up that he was going to hit the game winning uh, World Series hit. 
so I just I, I want to see like like Matthew described that 2014 Royals energy. I want to see that work out for some other beleaguered uh, fan base. Yeah, I think I recommended that Dorktown uh, as my Royals review review once. It's outstanding. I would highly recommend it. Very funny stuff about the history of the Seattle Mariners. Uh, and I am also rooting for them as well. I, I actually watched a lot of their games down the stretch um, on MLB TV, and uh, their broadcaster, Dave Sims, is, he's fantastic. I don't know why he doesn't get more kind of pub, and I'd like to see him do some national games because he's a really, really just solid broadcaster. But their fans are great, and I visited the ballpark five years ago. It's a really beautiful ballpark, uh, gorgeous weather in the summer, uh, and so it's really cool to see them. I mean, if you saw that Toronto series, they came out in droves in Seattle when the game was in Toronto so they could watch it and be together uh, on the Jumbotron at, at T-Mobile Park. So really great fans that have really been through a lot, uh, have never won a championship, never won a pennant, uh, despite, you know, having a team that, you know, they had never won a pennant. They had some two of the greatest players in history, Alex Rodriguez and King Griffey Jr., and one of the greatest pitchers of all time in Randy Johnson and the greatest DH of all time, Edgar Martinez, all on the same team, and they couldn't win a pennant. They won after that they won 116 games what second most all time and didn't win the pennant so they've been through you know and they had i think their first like 12 seasons were losing seasons they've been through some stuff uh so it'd be really great to see those fans rewarded uh, cleveland uh they're division rivals too but i've got some friends in cleveland uh that that's a franchise that has also gone through some stuff i mean losing the 1997 world series by a thread losing the 2016 world series by a thread uh, it's going to be really heartbreaking, not, not winning anything since 48. Um, so I'll be rooting for them. Padres a little bit as well, although they are kind of operating like a large market team, but that's a, another franchise that's never won at all. So got to feel for them. And then the rest of the teams can die as far as I'm concerned. I don't, I have no love for any of the other teams uh, in the playoffs. Either all big market teams or teams I just – the Phillies are just aesthetically a terrible team to watch. I just think they're, they're awful. I hate their – bad defense and uh so and the braves just won and the dodgers are behemoth and the yankees are the yankees and the astros are cheaters so i don't know it's it's, it's cleveland seattle and san diego are a bust for me uh as, as far as who will win it i don't know i got mets i had mets guardians at this point i think matthew's probably right it's gonna be yankees dodgers with the dodgers uh, inevitably winning it all but we'll have to see uh matthew i did want to touch upon your article this week you wrote about how the the, the postseason games, they've been kind of hard to follow uh, if you uh, are working all day. Uh, what did you uh, what did you have to say about the, the, the postseason game times? <laughs> so I remember distinctly being at work, not working, uh, of course, being at work and watching the Royals clinch the 2014 ALCS um, against, I guess it was Baltimore. Yeah. And I, we were all huddled around the computer, the computer or someone had, had the, the game on, on their, on the computer at the time, you know, and it was just like, it's a terrible experience. Obviously like who, whoever was able to go out and watch the game, you know, could, um, but you have to take a day off of work, um, you know, cause most people work during the day and most people work during the week. So that's just how it, you know, that's how, how it is. Primetime exists because more people are available to watch. And you think about like the, the Houston Astros game, you know, the game where the, um, the Royals came back against Houston and Carlos Correa had that, that, that whiff that was during the day. Also, I was only able to watch it again, not working because I was at home at the time. I was just happy to be working from home that day, but that was during the day. Also, it's just, it's terrible for fans, uh, 
for these weekday playoff games. It's awful. And I think the Roy, what the what the MLB does, what MLB does is they don't want the games to like compete against each other. Well, I I took a look and uh yeah, the NBA has games that compete against each other. They don't care. The NHL has games that compete against each other. They don't care. They know that if you're watching like, I don't know, Phoenix Suns play the Portland Trailblazers, that you don't really care about, you know, the Pacers playing the the Celtics in the playoffs. Like those are two totally different events. They're fine with them having them on at the same time because they have two totally different audiences and they're in prime time. And so the NHL, the, uh, the NBA, Major League Soccer, all their games are in prime time, all the playoff games in prime time. And obviously the NFL, their uh, games are on the weekend. So, um, you know, they don't have to deal with this. It's it's just, it's frustrating. And this is, I think, the second or third time that I've written about this. And it just like, it just really makes me angry every couple of years when I'm just like, what, what what's baseball doing? Like, seriously, I, I absolutely flummoxed at how, how stupid it is. I mean, like, come on. It's not like you're having too many playoff games. They had what four at, at one time? Like that's like the NBA has four playoff games going on, you know, in one, one day sometimes it's just, uh, I well, hate it. Well, think about how popular the NCAA tournament is. And there's tons of games going on at once. And, you know, you have live look-ins to when a game is getting close or it's coming down the wire and baseball lends itself to that so well, because there is so much time in between action that you could, you know, Hey, let's tune in to the Phillies. Cardinals game and we're coming down to the end. Uh, yeah, they can stagger the games, you know, start at like four, six, eight, and 10, if you want, uh, or, you know, something like that. If you wanted, didn't want to have a complete there, you know, if you want to end at different times, so you have maybe live look-ins or something like that, but yeah, it's ridiculous. I don't, I don't understand the not competing against each other. Like you said, all these other leagues do it fine. Um, and it just seems horribly, um, inconvenient to watch these games. I mean, some of the some of the games have not been well attended either because it's like one o'clock on a Wednesday. Who's, who's going to be able to take off time to do that? So, yeah, hopefully baseball gets that figured out. And because uh, I'd like more people to enjoy the playoffs because it, it's actually been a pretty fun playoff so far. Uh, and I'm sure we've got some more more uh, fun fun games ahead of us. Everyone should just be okay. like, sorry, everyone should just be like me and uh, you know work from home uh, yeah. 100% of the time, and then you don't have a problem. Maybe that's what they're counting on. Everyone just watching streaming from home now, uh, and it's not going to be an issue. Let's wrap things up with our Royals review reviews. Jeremy, why don't you uh, lead, us off, lead it off for us this week? All right. So this week I am going to recommend uh, 13 Sentinels. Oh, gosh, I forgot the, the whole title. Yeah. Uh, 13 Sentinels. Aegis Rim. Uh, which I don't – I'm – I don't know where the rim comes from in here, uh, but uh, this is a, it's a Japanese game published, or it's made by Vanillaware, published by Atlas. Uh, it's, it's kind of an RPG, um, but it's also like, there's a ton of, uh, it's, it's, I would say it's kind of the reverse in terms of gameplay of Persona, where Persona is an RPG that has uh, social sim elements. It's more of a social sim that has some RPG elements. Um, so the the game uh, is is told through memories of these 13 high school students, uh, and then also through battles, mech battles, because uh, you got to have some good old mech battles 
Uh, and and no one can pilot mechs like high school students. I don't know uh, if either of you are, are mecha fans, but that's how it seems to be. The, if you want, if it's a mecha anime, it's got to be high school students. Nobody else can do it right. Um, and so it's there's this, the the world is ending because aliens are invading uh, with their own robots, which are called kaiju, which is the Japanese word for like monster. That so usually like Godzilla would be considered a kaiju. Uh, so it's a little confusing. There's all kinds of time travel going on. Uh, there's science fiction elements. There's fantasy elements. There's a talking cat. Uh, there's just it. I, I haven't finished it yet, but there's so much shenanigans happening, and it's just completely just over the top. And uh, it's it's the I cannot wait to figure out where this mystery is finally going to end. Uh, at this point. Uh, I've I've seen stories kind of lead up to the end of the world in like four different time periods, so I'm I'm very confused about when when everything is happening. But uh, it's uh, it's it's a lot of fun. The gameplay is surprisingly deep uh, on the RPG side, despite the fact that um, it's not graphically intense. You kind of see the battles as if they were on like a, a mon- as if you were in a base looking at a computer monitor. Uh, but uh, the the characters are, are also kind of pretty well written uh they're they're they have kind of some of the stereotypes but they don't lean on the stereotypes they have some depth to them as well uh and which is really impressive considering how many characters are in this game uh 13 different protagonists plus all the side characters uh and and it's uh it's a lot of fun and i can't wait to play it uh can't wait to finish it and i hope everyone else will give it a chance matthew what do you have for us this week uh first of all i'm so, I'm so glad that you're playing that that is one of my favorite games um that i've played recently um i i'm not it is impossible to spoil because there's there's too many tech there's just it's just too twisty and like yeah i I, i'm so glad that you're playing it (laughs) um i um so if you have um played games um on pretty much any console over the last couple of years you know the word uh overwatch uh, the game overwatch so uh, Blizzard just released Overwatch 2. Um, it, it has the 2 in it, so you would think that it's a sequel, and it's like kind of a sequel, but also kind of not. So it's a free-to-play game, so um, you know you don't have to buy it to check it out. If it, you know, if you, if you take a look and it sounds it sounds cool, um, you know you can you can play it. You can download it for free, just like a lot of other free-to-play games like Fortnite or like Halo's multiplayer. It's got um, a battle pass, and it's got um, stuff that you can spend money on, but you don't have to spend money on on it if you don't want to, um, which is really nice. Um, for those of you who don't know, Overwatch is uh, a multiplayer game um, with uh, it's it's like it's called it's like a hero shooter in that each of the characters have their own um, basically uh, abilities and whatnot. Um, so it's different than like a Call of Duty or or you know like an old school Halo where everyone's the same. All the players are different, um, so it's 5v5 instead of the original 6v6, um, and this is a market improvement. Um, just, I think that's really the sweet spot. Six six players is a little too much, um, and five, I think, is, is the sweet spot. So um, if you haven't uh, tried it out, Overwatch um, is quite fun, especially if you can get a couple of friends. And like I said, it's free to play, so... Um, you know, anybody can play it. It's available on all kinds of consoles. Um, 
I downloaded it. Um, it just came out this week, last week, um, and it's 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 really solid. It improves upon the base game in a lot of ways, even though it's not totally different. It's more like Overwatch 1.5, but that doesn't sell very well. So um, Overwatch 2, uh, it's a fun time. It fixes a lot of the problems that the first game ended up having um, while still maintaining its, you know, fun multiplayer um, shooter, you know, objective-based fun times that the original did. My uh, Royals review review this week is an article at MLB.com by Mike Petrello. He always comes out with good stuff. It's called There's Never Been a Postseason Game Like Jordan's. Uh, talking about Jordan Alvarez, who won the game against the Mariners in heartbreaking fashion for Mariners fans with a three-run blast, part of a huge day for him, a three for five. But his three-run home run was a walk-off that won the game. And according to Petrello and, and baseball reference, uh, that was the largest win probably win probability added uh, by any one play in postseason history because it went from the uh, Astros having a 9% chance of winning the game when Alvarez stepped up to winning the game, obviously 100% chance when he ended the game. So it added 91% uh, to the win probability added. That was the greatest uh, by any one play in the playoffs. Second to that was Kirk Gibson's home, uh, famous home run in game one of the 1988 World Series for the Dodgers. Uh, I, but I was curious. He does have a list on baseball reference of the top win, uh, WPA plays uh, in, in, in of all time and put in the postseason. So this is adding uh, your chances of winning the game. So Salvador Perez's game winning hit in the wild card. Great play. But because the Royals were tied at the time, didn't really add as much win probability added as like a game winning hit where you were behind when the batter stepped up to the plate. So I don't know if you guys saw, I posted that Royals review um, in the comments today, yeah. but I, did you guys see what the top three Royals plays were of all time? Or can you guess what they are? I did. Uh, I thought the, the Alex Gordon home run was going to be the, the top one, but it was, yeah, that was number two because that won close. the game, yeah. but they, yeah, and they were down by one at the time. So that, that was pretty high. That's, that's, you know, that's pretty good. WPA right there. The other one, the first number one's a little old school. I don't know if you guys will get this one. It's not the 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 Dane York play, is it? That was number three. So or or okay. hits or just Dane York's hit to win Game Six of the 1985 World Series. Uh, because but the game was tied at that point, so it didn't add as much as the first two. So the number one play in Royals postseason history was George Brett's three-run home run off. Goose Gossage. Oh, of course. In the 1980 ALCS, which uh, effectively won the game. Uh, it was the top of the ninth, uh, but that silenced the crowd in Yankee Stadium. One of the great. If you if you have never seen that clip, do YouTube it because it's like 50,000 people going nuts one second and just going quiet in the next moment. Like George shut them up. So anyway, that's the number one play in Royals history and wins probably win probability added. Uh, uh, so uh, so that's that's. That's where, that's the one play in Royals history that changed the team's fortunes. Didn't change the, the team's fortunes enough. They did win that series, but didn't win the World Series that year. But uh, they they did uh, have a great series. Finally beat the Yankees that year. So uh, thanks to George, finally besting the Yankees. Well, that'll do it for this this week. Thanks to Matthew and Jeremy for being on. Thanks to our listeners for tuning in. Talk to you all next time. Bye.